all nuts to another episode of Nut News, the show where I swear you're nuts because you keep coming back and listening to more. Today, though, I've got a Nut News first, our first guest from outside of the select horror sphere, Jim Watts. Jim is the owner of Watts Solitary Bees and RentMasonBees.com and former president of the Orchard Bee Association and current member of the Pollinator Partnership's Bee Friendly Task Force. Today, he's here to lend us his insights into mason bees and their applications in almond orchards. Jim, I know this is a very busy time of year for you, and uh, you were traveling all day today, so appreciate you uh, taking the time to sit and chat with me. We're looking forward to it. It's been a good day. The sun is shining. Yeah, and I even saw a few bees out there today. Um, it's still a little early for them to be out in full force. Um, but we're here to talk about mason bees, uh, and I thought I would just ask you to... Uh, Tell us what a mason bee is. I'm going to guess uh, many listeners out there don't know what a mason bee is. Yeah, a mason bee is a solitary bee. So unlike honeybees, which you know we're all very familiar with, they do not have a colony. Uh, they uh, each female is uh, lays her own eggs, so you don't have a queen. They're solitary, as as the name states, and so each bee does each female does her own thing. The males essentially mate and eat, and um, that's about it. <laughs> the females do all the work in the orchard. So she goes around, collects pollen, and comes back to her nest and creates a little uh, pollen ball uh, f- and then lays an egg on that pollen ball. And then that pollen ball becomes the food for that egg as it develops over the course of this, the next year. And uh, so they're prolific at pollinating. They fly much differently than a honeybee. They tend to go from tree to tree. They're great cross-pollinators. Uh, they collect pollen very inefficiently. So every flower they go to, they tend to drop a lot of pollen. And so that makes them very efficient pollinators. Yeah, so very different than than honeybees. And I'm sure you know we, we've seen other bees out there um, flying around. I know here in my California garden, um, I've seen lots of different bees. Um, am I going to find mason bees in and around my garden? Depending on where you live, possibly. So they are native to California. So we do actually raise some bees up in the foothills of the Sierras, in the coast range. Down in the valley, probably not so much. Um, agriculture has probably, over the past you know 100 years, wiped a lot of them out with sprays and stuff. And so not so much um, in the valley. But, you know, like if you live in Sacramento, in your neighborhood, you might see some. Uh, you live in Davis, you might see some, that, that kind of thing, but more in the foothills. Well, and we're here out in Orland, so you might not find them naturally occurring, but we are putting them into um, our orchards. And uh, I kind of wanted you to get give us some insights as to perhaps why we'd be putting mason bees um, out into the orchards when, you know, historically speaking, uh, you know, we're, we're putting lots of honeybees out there. What, what, what is our, are there advantages? I mean, what, what's the purpose here? Yeah. So, um, a lot of our growers are, what they're finding is, is that it's a good risk management strategy for them. Um, the price of honeybees continues to go up and what our growers are doing is they're reducing their honeybee load. And so, uh, research shows that with one honeybee hive and a thousand mason bees, having two bees in your orchard, uh, really helps your pollination. And so you can get uh, better pollination rates by having two bees in an orchard. Uh, there are a lot of crops, other crops, where farmers employ multiple bees and have been very successful. And so we're, we have a number of growers now who are seeing that um, with the mason bee and almonds that, 
you know, on years when it's really cold, mason bees fly at a colder temperature. So when we have bad weather years, uh, it helps mitigate some of the uh, weather issues that you run into. And of course, we don't control weather. And so uh, it's a good risk management strategy in those circumstances. And the research actually does show that when you have both bees present, uh, you can get a higher pollination rate and thus a higher yield. And our bees in situations where, like almonds, where you need a lot of cross-pollination between varieties, mason bees do a much better job of pollinating, cross-pollinating in those circumstances. So I, I, you get into some of the some of the, the whys there, you know, but if they're better at I'm, I'm picking some things up here. I'm learning, so bear with me. But you, you mentioned that they're they're better pollinators, or you know, they're better at cross pollinating. So part of the question I have here is, why aren't we just using mason bees? Have we done research here to, to show that they work best in tandem? Or yeah, so we have. Yeah, so the research shows that they do best in tandem. In, in tandem, like you said, and some of that has to do with competition. So when a bee, any bee, lands on a flower, they leave behind a scent a pheromone. And that tells other bees that they're there and they're working. And we actually have research that shows that your honeybees are more efficient pollinators on their first visit when mason bees are present. And so you're actually getting better work out of your honeybees as well, just by having the mason bee there. Well, that's interesting. So you get that enhancement of, of the honeybee too. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, exactly. So then how are, how are you deploying mason bees into, into your orchards? If they're not queen hive based, you know, how do we get them out into the fields when, when Bloom's present? Yeah, great question. So also with that, because the deployment happens because also the mason bee doesn't fly very far. So if they have everything they need, they only go about 300 feet. And so unlike honeybees where maybe they like the neighbor's orchard better, <laughs> our bees are not going over there. Um, so we have to deploy them throughout the orchard. So what we do is every acre we deploy uh, a nesting site for the bees and a release point. So every acre you're releasing bees at that, at that site and they'll fan out through the orchard doing their pollination and then come back to that and do their nesting there. And so because they fly, don't fly very far, you have to have them deployed throughout the entire orchard. You know, where honeybees, you can come in, you can drop them on a road on the outside of the orchard. You can't do that with these bees. So we provide to our growers the nesting materials and everything they need to deploy the nests throughout the orchard. And so the first year, there's a little bit of extra work getting that all set up. But then in subsequent years, it's much easier. You're kind of set up, ready to go. And it's just a matter of putting out the nest blocks that we use for the bees to lay their eggs in. And then once, and then again, once pollination's over with those, you can remove them from the orchard, get everything out of the way, and they are just stored during the summer in a building somewhere or facility that you've got while the bees develop over the course of the summer. So that's an interesting point. So, you know, a, a honeybee hive, when they're done here in the orchard, you know, they're, they're going off to other crops for pollination. And, you know, the, the hive itself is active for most, if not all, of the year. So it, a mason bee, it kind of sounds like they, they go in the orchard, they do their thing, and then they're they're done. Yeah. So the adults, um, adult bees, even honeybees, only live about six or eight weeks. The difference with a honeybee hive is that you have bees being hatching every day, and you have bees dying every day. With mason bees, we can hatch the bees out on the day you have bloom, uh, put them in the orchard. They do their thing. They live six to eight weeks, and then the adults die, and then 
all you have then after that then is your eggs, which then are your bees for the next year. And it's a full year cycle. So there's not really any management hardly at all uh, outside of that bloom time. So then I guess the, the, the step here would be when they're done with the bloom, then you're, you're harvesting the, the eggs and then, or the larva and you're storing them to be ready for, for the next, for the next year. For the next year. Yep. So then that kind of sounds like to me, like that might be pretty self-sustaining. Are, are you able to get enough young to be able to sustain your, you know, your needs for, for the next year or, or how does that work? Yeah. So in an orchard, it really depends on uh, your management practices. So usually our growers are not able to get 100% return on their bees. Um, there's, and there's several reasons for that. The main reason is in an orchard, you primarily have one type of pollen, you know, and, and it's almonds. And almond pollen is, is great for the bees, but it's kind of like I, I tell people, well, broccoli is really good for you. But if all you did was eat broccoli you probably wouldn't be overly healthy. <laughs> you, yep. you need you need to adjust your diet. And this and the same is true with bees. Uh, one form of pollen does not provide everything that they need nutrition-wise, and so they need a variety of pollen. And in an orchard, you tend not to have very much variety. A lot of our growers are, have gone to cover crop, which you guys have done. That's going to help on bee returns, we think, in a significant way. We've had growers that have uh, used cover crop and then seen a 30% difference in the return on their bees. But even at that, you're not going to get 100% back. Some years you might, but we find that most of our growers on average get about 40 to 50% of their bees back each year. And then they need to buy the other half for the following year. And we can provide those. We've developed sort of a sustainable loop here where we're producing the bees in the wild where they'll naturally multiply, and then we can provide those to the orchards to um, meet the needs each year uh, of whatever bees they didn't get back. So then, help me out here. If if you're if you're having to to replace the bees every year, I mean, are you? How does that pencil? Are you still coming out ahead for? you know, in comparison to, to honeybees, because you, you bring in the, the mason bees, you're reducing your honeybee loads, so you're saving a little bit of money there, but now you have these costs and yearly costs with the mason bee program. And I'm sure mo- a lot of growers out there are going to be, you know, dismissive and think that that, that all of a sudden is just going to cost a bunch more, but right, sounds like it's not. Yeah. So we're coming in very close to honeybee prices right now. So our, you know, and it really depends on your management style, your labor costs, your the way you spray, the weather that year, how the bees do, you know, in terms of your returns. I think we're looking at over the course of kind of a five-year rolling average, our growers are coming back to us that we're right in the $200 an acre range. Um, It costs quite a bit to get started because you've got to create the infrastructure and everything for a new program. It's like any other new program you would do. There's always uh, overhead costs the first year to get everything going. But then those quickly drop, and then it's just a matter of maintaining your, your bee supply. So uh, depending on how well, how well you do, do you care about how bees when you spray? If you don't, it's going to cost you more money. <laughs> if you do and you spray at night and you do it right, you're going to do better at your returns, and it's going to cost you less. Well, and I think that's kind of the area that I wanted to dig in a little bit more on is, you know, what are some of those differences between 
you know, the environment in which you're raising them in, in a more wild or natural setting to get those higher returns to be able to supply it versus versus the orchard. So, you know, you you talk about whether I well let, let's get let's get rid of that that variable, but but what are the variables that are at our disposal here in an orchard um, that would help us likely see higher returns and, and allow us to bring those those cost and efficiency points down. Down, yeah. So the two biggest issues are really pollen load, availability of pollen, and a variety of pollen, and then how you spray. So um, our guys that are obviously doing cover crop are doing better because they have more varieties of pollen for the bees. And, the, and then also that cover crop can bloom after um, almond bloom is over, you know, because the bees are going to fly for six, eight weeks. Well, if, if almond bloom is three weeks, you're missing a lot of productivity there of your bees. And so that, that will help sustain the bees for a little bit longer and gives them some variety of pollen. That's a really big uh, plus for you. And then spraying is really critical. You have to spray at night. Um, we, our recommendation for our guys is the acreage where they use the mason bees is they do it like right at dusk. So it has plenty of time to dry before the bees are out the next day and that they don't do any tank mixing. So just, you know, if you have to spray a fungicide, which happens, you know, it's life of uh, almond grower, um, that you just spray the active fungicide and don't add any of the adjuvants. Um, we've found that those tank mixes are not good for bees. And so if you'll make that adjustment, you'll get better returns on your bees. So if you're a grower that has an integrated pest management program, uh, maybe you have like us, uh, Bee Friendly Farming uh, certifications or um, the Bee Better certification through Xerxes Society as, as another example, are you already you know, meeting those best practices for returns on mason bees or are there still things that would need to be implemented? Yeah, no, if you're the Pollinator Partnership Program, if you're doing that, then you're probably, you're already there. Yeah, because we we really resonate with everything that they're doing in terms of what their recommendations are, and that really helps our mason bees. And so the two will work hand in hand really, really well and will help your bottom line um, as a result. So something that struck me in our earlier conversations, you know, um, we've met a couple of times before this podcast, and the mason bees, they, they nest in long tunnel tubes, if you will. Um, and then they're, they're making their cells, um, with, with mud, right? We, yeah. we talked about this and, uh, and it's an experiment that, uh, Brian Bly is, is running here in our fields, um, providing mud and different types, uh, or compositions in the field, um, t- to help make sure that there is, you know, the appropriate style of mud for the bees to, to help with, with the nesting have, have, you and your team done any experiments? Have you found things that that aid in that process? Um, and I'm assuming that you you influenced Brian on this, but uh, I, I wanted to ask. Yeah. So Brian, what Brian's going to use is a clay um, that actually it it just comes from a pottery supply place. Yeah, it's super cheap. We've used it for years um, with the bees. The bees love it. And essentially all we do is, you know, so certain, certain farms, we have farms, uh, especially up here in Orland, up just a little bit North of where we're at here, tons of clay. You don't have to do anything. The bees love it. They use it works really well. Um, but certain areas you get to sometimes some, some guys feel, you know, it might be sand. Well, it's pretty hard to build with sand. So you have to supplement. 
And and here um, at Hart Farms, your the soil works pretty well, but we think we can enhance it and do a little bit better. So all they're doing is digging a hole about a foot deep and putting some of this clay in there and keeping it wet. And we know the bees love it. And so the bees will use it. And, and it's, it's, I've been doing this a long time. I grew up, my dad started a company in the sixties with bees and it's amazing to me to see a hole dug in the middle of an orchard and be, and then bees finding it. I, I don't know how they do it, right? They're solitary bees, supposedly. <laughs> yep. And here they are flocking to it. And here they are flocking to it. And you'll, you know, I've, we have videos of, of, in orchards of 10 or 15 of mason bees in this hole collecting mud. And somehow they're, I don't, they must communicate somehow and find that mud because they'll flock to it. And so we dig one of those holes about every, uh, every acre and just stick it right underneath a hole in your drip line and then the bees will find it. Well, so, you know, we've been doing this for several years now and, and obviously you've been doing this for a lot longer. Um, so I kind of want to know what you maybe see on the horizon here next five years, let's say, not just here on, on our farms, but just almond farms in general. How do you see mason bees playing a role? Do you think it's going to be an expanded role? I mean, what do you see on the horizon here? Great question. We have been increasing our Mason B side of our company as fast as we can because demand has been picking up. You know, if, if honeybees go up in price, another 10, 20, $30, uh, a hive, um, we are going to be, we are, demand is going to be huge for us. Um, people are going to want our bees, um, because, uh, we're actually we've actually lowered our price in the last five years by twenty five percent, and we can and we would like to you know we we want to keep our prices down. We want we want to help growers make money. Um, my dad has always said, if your growers can make a lot of money, you're going to do really well, and that's my goal. My goal is to help growers make make a lot of money, and make a lot of nuts, and we're going to do just fine if we do that. And, and we think demand's going to go up for these bees. And so, um, you know, it, and it's, it, it's different, it's unique and it's something that you have to learn how to do, how to do it. And, um, we've had growers that we've said, you know, this isn't for you. Um, they just, they're not focused enough. Um, but growers like here with Brian, you know, they, they're doing a great job with it. They're being successful at it. And, um, we think demand's going to really go up for the bees. Well, I think that's a great plug for you. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and honestly, uh, you know, we the, this podcast, uh, you know, we have a subseries on sustainability. This falls directly in line with that, um, and it is it is a part of the the holistic picture here. Um, and you know, the common theme that we have in the sustainability is, you know, anything that you implement has to be sustainable for the business to start with. So your comment yes. about, you know, m- making money for the growers. I mean, that's right. Right. Yeah. And if the business can make money, then we're going to be, we're going to work together really well. Yes. So, um, my question then to you is, you know, let, if someone's out there listening, they want to get, uh, you know, be a participant or get more information. Um, what, what would be the best way to get a hold of you at, um, at Watts Solitary Bees? Yeah. So our website is, uh, wattsbees.com. You can go on there and you can learn more about what we do as a company. And, um, all our contact information is there. That's probably going to be the easiest way. There's a form submission there that you can fill out. And I'll get uh, your contact info. 
And then my email address is jim at wattsbees.com. That's easy to remember. That's, <laughs> it should be easy to remember. Try to keep it simple. Yeah. Well, and uh, I'm also going to give you a plug for uh, rentmasonbees.com. That's your, um, I guess, uh, consumer side of things, individual. And uh, as a, and I've said before, I am a home gardener and uh, I'm actually going to be employing some of your bees in my garden this year. However, um, not mason bees are going to do leaf cutter bees. Uh, and if anyone out there is interested in that, I would uh, just suggest to you rentmasonbees.com. Go check it out. Uh, it's a really interesting um, service that they have there. Uh, bring in solitary bees into your garden, help pollinate stuff, hopefully get a better harvest. That's my goal. And that's our goal for you as well. Yes, right? <laughs> yes. Um, when the first time we talked, I was like, Jim, I, I can never get any tomato harvest. And you're like, well, you know, I got a service for that, Alan. <laughs> so we're going to try it out, and I hope you uh, try it out uh, out there too. And uh, I think maybe we'll, uh, we'll try to get back to, in touch maybe uh, towards the end of the season um, or maybe this time next year. We'll have to kind of see. But um, I know I'd just be interested in tracking – you know, the experiments that we're doing, uh, you know, the addition of uh, cover crops and the addition of the uh, of the mud. And, you know, we're doing a couple other things, too. So at the very least, uh, Jim, I, I really do appreciate your time uh, for stopping by and, and enlightening us on, on mason bees. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate the time. Well, if you're out in the orchard this spring, keep an eye out for those little black, fuzzy little mason bees. I'm assuming they're fuzzy. Jim, are they fuzzy? Yeah, sort of. Yeah. Yep. They got they got a little hair on them, they right? They're not as hairy as those uh, bumblebees. No, though, right? not as hairy as bumblebees, yep. Well, if you're out there, uh, <laughs> keep an eye out for them. And uh, keep an eye out for all those other pollinators. There really are quite a few. Once you start uh, going down that Pandora's box, it really does seem endless on all those little critters that are out there. Protect them and give them thanks for all the uh, wonderful things that uh, they do. And, uh, you know, just in case I might uh, be carrying an EpiPen, but, you know, probably just leave it at home because, you know, I'm not really... I'm not afraid of them, and besides, I'm nuts, because this is nut news. 